And one more time, wild applause for Joel Romulus as he brings the word. Well, good morning, Greenhouse. How you guys doing? You guys doing all right? Awesome, man. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to be back here at my old stumping grounds. Um, I have so many awesome memories here in this place, and, and this faith family has contributed so much to my spiritual growth and development. So it's an honor for me to be able to open up God's word with you all and, and dive in in this series that, that you guys have been in the book of Acts called The Movement. And Pastor Robert did a great job last Sunday bringing the word and just sharing that God can change anyone. And I want to continue in this series. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10, this, this phenomenal story that we have between Cornelius, a Gentile, and Peter, a Jew. So if you have your Bibles, if you will, if you would just jump up on your feet. We're going to be in Acts 10, looking at 1 through 8. Acts 10, 1 through 8. It says these words. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctively saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants, a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Verse 34 of the same chapter, Peter summarizes kind of the whole episode of what went down, it says these words, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I want to talk to us in our exchange from the subject title, there is no partiality with God. There is no partiality with God. Will you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to dive into your word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will abide it forever. Father, I pray that your word will go forth, and Lord, it will yield a harvest of 40, 60, and 100 fold. Lord, we ask that I will decrease and that you would increase all the more. Save, heal, and deliver. We pray this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus. Give someone a high five as you take a seat and tell them there is no partiality with God. In 1971, two Virginia schools, one white, one black, desegregated and reintegrated as T.C. Williams High School. 
Now, the ensuing uh, racial tension with these schools is further examined by the high school football team. And this is from the movie Remember the Titans, all right? That's a classic, one of my favorite movies. So they reintegrate, and the team and the students meet before school for their fall preseason camp. And we see through their interactions that they discover skin means nothing, but heart means everything. And we see here that they, they gather together, and, and one of my favorite scenes of the movie, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a movie that I binge watch, I watch over and over and over again. One of my favorite scenes of the movie is when the two outspoken leaders on the defense, kind of the alpha males, Campbell and Bertia, they kind of gather together. And if any of you all played sports, when, you, when, you, when you're getting ready to go in the game, there's typically this call and response that takes place, hyping each other up, where you, you're pumping each other up and getting ready for the game. Well, Campbell and Bertia, they're gathered together kind of in a circle. The team is around them, and they begin to hype each other up. And Bertia says to Campbell, he says, Campbell, what type of power you got? Campbell responds, man, I got soul power. He says again, man, I got soul power. He lifts that fist in the air and all of the, you know, the black, black guys on the team are like, yeah, 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 yeah. He, and then Campbell looks at Bertia. He says, Bertia, how strong are you? Man, you know, Campbell, I'm too strong. He says again, I'm too strong. And all the white guys on the team kind of celebrates and, and they gather together and have this moment where they finally break through their racial barriers. They finally come to a place where they realize together they are stronger than they could ever be apart. This is the turning point of the entire movie. When we look at Acts chapter 10, what we see here is something similar to that scene in Remember the Titans, where in Acts chapter 10, it is the turning point where now God is using these two different men from different cultures, from different backgrounds, to unite together towards a common goal and a common vision. In Acts chapter 10, a, a unity is created between Jew and Gentile, this, this century-long feud or, or separation or distance that has existed between Jew and Gentile is now shifted here in Acts chapter 10. The author of Acts, Luke, he highlights how important this is by allowing this to be one of the longest narratives we have in Acts chapter 10 further highlighting that this is a turning point in the redemption of God, God's plan for you and I. Well, but before we can understand Acts chapter 10, the reason Acts chapter 10 exists is because of Acts chapter 3. What is Acts chapter 3, uh, Pastor Joel? Well, in Acts chapter 3, we see here man is created in the image of God. And man decides to exalt self above God, exalt our own wisdom above God's wisdom. And what ensues is not only is there a separation between God and man, but there's also a separation between humanity and others. And what ensues as a result is this, this us versus them type of mentality 
This sin of indifference, this, this tribalistic nature that has been baked into our human condition. And as we continue on the story, we look in Acts chapter 4, and it further underscores this separation. Why? You got Cain, who kills his brother Abel. We see all throughout history what takes place and what happens when there is division. Friends, here's, here's what's at stake. Here's why this sermon is so important. It's important because Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 25, he says these words. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to destruction. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. So what Jesus is getting at is, is this. Check this out. Don't miss this. Division inevitably leads to discrimination. And discrimination inevitably leads to degradation or destruction. We don't have to look too far. We can see this in our current culture. We can see this all throughout history. We're more, we're more divided than ever before. We're divided black and white, men and women, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant. We're more divided than ever. In fact, it was MLK who said, 11 o'clock right now is the most segregated hour in America. We see division in our homes with the recent polls saying 50% of most marriages will end in divorce. We see division amongst the people of God, those who are called by God, reconciled by a God who is gracious and merciful, and yet we see division and risk between those who are called to reflect God's love and glory in the earth, right? Whether it's, hey, I believe in speaking in tongues, or I don't believe in speaking in tongues. I believe church should be this way. I believe we should have fast music, slow music, a mixture of both. We see the division in our churches over trivial, tertiary things. We miss the picture that God ultimately had in mind. We see the division in our nation. You can just go through social media and scroll. You won't have to scroll too long to see the division and the rifts that are created. But I come to tell you, Greenhouse Church, come on somebody, there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is hope for us to unite as we see with these, these young men. Now mind you, you know, Disney gonna romanticize everything, right? Like remember the Titans, like they don't show the grime and the gruff and really the difficulty of what it takes to really unite. But we see here in the scripture, Acts gives us hope where we have two unlikely people, a Jewish fisherman named Peter, called by Jesus, right? Big mouth Peter where he's so sure of himself, he knows everything, God has to humble him a few times. But what I love about Peter is he's always willing. He doesn't know everything, he doesn't get everything, and he's at many times rambunctious and just all over the place, but he's willing. We see God calls Peter in this text, he gives Peter a vision. And this is a vision of, of these animals coming down from heaven, and, and God tells Peter, yo, kill and eat. Peter's like, no, Lord, I'm a good Jewish man, I don't eat that which is unclean. And he says this three times, like, how, how, 
Peter, how many times God's going to have to like reschool you and retrain you? Three times. Nah, God, I don't do this. I'm like, if God tells you to do something, like, do it. Peter argues with God back and forth and then finally obeys. At the same time, Cornelius has a vision. and Cornelius sees this angel t- saying to him, hey, listen, call for Peter. Send your men to go call for Peter. And while his men are getting ready to go to knock on Peter's door, Peter has this vision, and it's all confirmed. And God here in this text is bringing about two unlikely people, a Roman centurion and a Jewish fisherman, to display the unity that exists and he desires for all of mankind. How does this happen is the question. Because we look and we see and we say, man, well, it's so difficult for that unity to take place. Not just racially, with men and women, with teams, with families. There's this rift, there's this divide. When we don't see eye to eye, we throw in the towel and yet God is calling us to come together. How do we make this happen? I'm glad you asked because the text makes it very clear right here. Here's the main point of the entire chapter, Acts chapter 10. Here's the main point of the entire sermon. You ready for it? All right, get ready. Here it is. There is no partiality with God. That's the main idea. There there is no partiality. Well, Joel, that seems very basic. That seems very rudimentary. That seems, is there more? There is no partiality with God. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, after he took the long trip, 39 miles from Joppa to Caesarea, he ponders, ruminates, meditates about what God is doing. He encounters Cornelius and his family. And then here's his words. Here's his conclusion of all that went down. There is no, he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, God doesn't have favorites. He's not partisan. He's not biased. He is just and fair in all of his doings. Deuteronomy 10, 17 highlights this further. It says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. Often when you look at Acts chapter 10, we, most preachers, theologians, and even myself, as I was studying this passage, reading it over and over and over, like, what's the main idea? We can often immediately turn to Cornelius, Roman centurion, powerful man, a man who had clout, a man who had rights, and we can highlight how Wow, man, he really gave up those rights, you know, probably had some falling out with some of his Roman soldiers who was like, yo, you're going to kick it with a Jew? We can highlight the Roman centurion often. We go immediately there. Or we look at Peter. Man, this, this Jewish guy, he's, he's under the, literally under the Roman oppression. He's a second-class citizen in this empire. Literally doesn't have certain rights because of Rome, and yet he willingly goes. And we can immediately go and look at their lives, and I believe if we do so, we miss the forest for the trees. We miss the bigger picture. 
The bigger picture, Peter starts with God. He starts with God being a God who is impartial. Why is that important? It's important because God consistently acts and moves and does things that is in lockstep with who he is. God never acts in a way that is different than who he is. Where you and I, we typically find our identity in what we do. Where God knows who he is and therefore he acts in accordance with who he is. And so often we say, you know, man, I'm not an emotional person. I, I just, that, that ain't me. I'm not, I'm not emotional. I, I, I don't do that. Or we'll say, you know, uh, I don't hang with those type of people. You know, I don't vote blue or I don't vote red or I do Christian private school. I do, you know, homeschool, Christian homeschool. We, we're pro-guns or we're anti-guns. We, we're the woke church and we do reconciliation this way. We, we do baptism in that way. And church, do you see the danger? Do you see how we're back at square one if our initial reaction or initial steps is to find our identity in what we do? Because what happens is we begin to exalt again, like we did in Genesis, we exalt ourselves or what we do above Christ. We exalt our preferences for this or for that, or for slow worship, or for fast worship, or a church like this, or like, yo, I could come to your house, but um, can you not put raisins in your uh, potato salad? Like, I could kick it with you, but can I bring my own ipis? You know, I'm Haitian, you know, I just... And here's what we do, we exalt our preferences above Christ. We exalt our wokeness over others. We exalt our rightness over compassion. We exalt our orthodoxy, right? Right thinking about God over our orthopraxy, right practice about God. We exalt our manhood over against womanhood. And we're back at square one. Peter says we got to start with God because God is big enough where there's room at his table for all of our prefaces and all of our uniquenesses and all of our idiosyncrasies. We must start with God. My wife, who is the vibranium to my Wakanda, <laughs> she is uh, an amazing, amazing woman of God. We've learned so much over our five years of marriage. I'm telling you, we've had pitfalls. And just two weeks ago, uh, my wife started a, a business. Um, she's offering doula services to mothers. That was a shameless plug, all right? You know, I'm like, hey, if you guys know some mamas up in Gainesville, send us our way. But she had a birth that was coming up on a Thursday. She was all, out all night on Thursday. And then Saturday morning came about, and she's like, hey, Joel. I got to go back to the hospital, be with the mother, help her take a shower, offer her, you know, pre-pregnancy advice, stuff like that. And I was like, cool, no worries. A one and a half year old? Like, yeah, bet. Like, we going to kick it. You're like, no worries. Man, this kid was peeling my brains apart. Like, I'm like, he's peeling my brains apart. We're running around. I'm like, how much longer can we watch Sesame Street without, like, it's just nuts. It's crazy. And so I'm looking at the watch and she's like, yeah, I'll be there around 2.30. So I look at my watch, 2.30 come around, look at it again, 3 o'clock, he's ripping and running, running around, the house is torn all over, I'm like, okay, 4 o'clock comes, I was like, okay, maybe something is wrong, let me give her a call. I give her a call, 
She's like, hey, Joel, I'm holding the baby. Uh, the mom is showering. I'm sorry, things took longer than expected. I didn't know, please, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, okay, cool, no worries. Hung, hang, you know, hang up the phone, four o'clock passes, it's five o'clock now, it's six o'clock. It's 6.30, I'm like trying to feed the kid, he's throwing tantrums, I'm like tantrum number three, number four. And finally, she walks in the door. I ain't gonna lie, I know I'm supposed to be preaching, man. Y'all, y'all, your boy was livid, I was mad. I was mad. I'm like, yo, you, you better have a good excuse. She comes in, she's just apologizing profusely, babe, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And immediately in my mind, here's what's taking place. I'm gonna let you guys in. In my mind, I'm just telling stories. Like, man, she couldn't, if that was me, I would have been on time, like, you know, I'm an on-time type of guy, man. You, you got to be more considerate. Like, if that was me, I would have at least texted and called. And I'm just, in my mind, just telling myself all of these different things. And guess what's happening? Division. And division now is bringing about where I'm, I'm going in my head. And she, you know, I'm not saying this out loud. I learned. That was year, year two of being married. I would have said it out loud. This is, it's in my head now, right? <laughs> So I'm having this conversation in my head. I'm going back and forth, and, 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 I'm, I, and I'm getting to a place where, where the division is seeping in even more. And now it's bringing about this discrimination. I'm telling myself these stories about my wife. And if the Holy Spirit didn't check me, it would have ultimately led to degradation or the destruction of our union and our marriage. Why? Because in that moment, I was exulting my goodness and my untimeness higher and above who Christ had called me to be in that moment as a husband. Who I was called to be was to be someone who reflect God's compassion and mercy towards my wife as she came to me repenting and apologizing. But because all I can see was myself and how, if it was me, this is how I would have done it. I would have been on time. I would have called you. I would have done this. I'm exalting myself above who Christ has called me to be instead of acting in light of who he's called me to be and allowing that to inform how I move and how I relate and how I respond. And the result is division. And this is what happens often in our lives and in our churches. Peter starts with God. He says there is no partiality with God. We cannot peri-tick his attributes or choose which ones we choose to uphold. Oh, being on time? Let me uphold this. God is disciplined at the expense of compassion. No. We must embrace the fullness of all that he is. Come to him on his terms. Reflect the glory of the triune clique that rose thick. To reflect the glory of what Shailen the rapper says, glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the Spirit, three and yet one. He's one in his essence. He's three in his persons. He's the same in his nature, yet distinct in his workings. All oh, this Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, working together in unity to reflect the glory of who they are. That is who we are called to gaze at, to look at, in order to live out the charge of what God has placed upon each and every one of us. So the central theme in this passage is that God is impartial. 
Because God always acts in lockstep with who he is, he furthermore calls us as human beings to reflect his nature. And so now armed with this thinking and this understanding of how Peter highlights this scene, we're able to clearly see what is God's mission, what is his method, and what is his motivation for unity? What is God's mission? What is his method? And what is his motivation? I'm going to share those very quickly, and then we're going to get up out of here. You guys with me? Say you with me. His mission is to create a diverse expression of redeemed cultures united to display the glory of Christ. That is his mission, is to create a diverse expression of redeemed cultures united to display the glory of Christ. Acts 10, 44, and it says, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. God's gift, God's presence, his residence dwelling up on the inside of us was poured out on Gentiles. What are Gentiles? Gentiles are anyone who are non-Jewish. Anyone who's non-Jewish, which makes a lot of us in this room probably, you know, John Lash, Nancy Lash, but all of us in here are Gentiles. And God pours out his spirit upon them. So we see here in Acts chapter 10, there's a partial fulfillment of God's redemptive plan because now here in Acts chapter 10, the barrier between Jew and Gentile is now broken open. That door is broken open and the movement is now started. But we also see here that God's desire is to create a diverse expression of redeemed cultures. You see, when he called Cornelius a Roman centurion, Cornelius did not have to lose his ethnic identity in coming to Christ. Neither did Peter have to lose his ethnic Jewishness in coming to Christ. Which means for all of us in this room, with the room this size, with the diversity that's represented in this room or those watching online, when we come to Christ, we're able to bring, if you're Latino, you're able to bring your culture. You're able to bring uh, uh, the flares of, of what it means to be Hispanic. If you're Haitian, you're able to keep all of those things, but all of it needs to submit under the banner of who Jesus is. That there's times, yo, if you want to worship, we, we, can, we can worship in Creole and, and begin to praise the Lord in our native tongue. You can worship in whatever language, whatever tongue in which you speak. You're able to come before the Lord and lay that at his feet. Redeem. But I'll humbly submit to you that our Latinoness or our blackness must never trump our Jesusness. My Haitianness, and this means a lot because there are certain things as an Afro-Caribbean male that I'm not, I'm not predisposed to, like, like hiking, right? I just, all my, my light-skinned brothers, like, I'll come, I'll lay down my preface and try to come hiking with you, but it's going to take a while. You got to be gracious with me. You know what I mean? I'm just like, why, why am I going to go hiking or go out in a tent? you know, out in the wilderness, a bear can come get me. Like, why not just put the tent inside? There's AC. I'm like, see, I, 
I can have those preferences. I can love my legging, my di sauspois, my bun and pese. But when I come to your house, I can eat your, your, you know, potato salad with raisins in it to the glory of God. Amen. But my Jesus, my, my blackness, my culture must never trump my Jesusness. We're called to express a diverse, a diverse culture of believers. Revelation 7 verse 9, God gives us the final picture. It starts or begins in Acts chapter 10, but then we have the final picture. This is our hope, Christians. This is where we're all headed. If you're a believer here in Jesus, have placed your faith in him. This is what gets me hope. When I look at the world and I see all the division, all the rifts, I come to Revelation 7 verse 9, and the apostle John has this vision. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. This is where we are headed. We see the fact that there is no partiality with God. We see his mission is to create a diverse expression of redeemed cultures gathered together in unity to display the glory of who he is. How does this happen? How does this happen? Well, Acts chapter 10, this narrative, gives us some things to hold on to. And here's the method. Here's the method. How does unity happen between husband and wife, between different generations of people, between black and white? How does unity that glorifies God happens here it's to walk the uncomfortable and humbling path that leads to reconciliation. That's how it happens. God calls Peter to walk the uncomfortable and humbling path that leads to reconciliation. Peter's a Jew. He takes that long path from Joppa to Caesarea. Caesarea is a city named after Caesar, right? You don't get more pagan than a city named after Caesar. Peter's a Jew. God says, go to Caesarea, where there are going to be people eating all types of things that he considered unclean. There are going to be people worshiping pagan gods. There are going to be people that thought differently than him, that believed differently than him. And when he showed up because of how Peter dressed outwardly as a Jew, they're going to know he's different. Eyes are going to be turning. What you doing here? People are going to be looking at him, and yet Peter walks the uncomfortable path with humility that leads to reconciliation. He's willing to go there. This is no cakewalk for Peter, and neither is it a cakewalk for Cornelius, a manly man, a commander of hundreds. He says a word, and people move at his orders, yet he obeys God. Reminds me of a movie called 42. In 1941, a middle-aged man knocked on the door of a church in Brooklyn. The door opened, the pastor answered, and he says, listen, I, I need to meet with God. I'm not here to disturb you. I'm not here to bother you. I need to meet with God. You can visibly see that there was something weighty on his soldiers. He had a, a major decision to make. He needed to consult with God, and, and after he spends some time praying with God, he gets up, grabs his hat, 
heads out the door. Well, that man, Branch Rickey, would go on to sign the first African-American to play in the modern major leagues, a man by the name of Jackie Robinson. And the movie 42 shows you all of the backlash, all of the criticism, all of the hate that was spewed his way as a result of walking that uncomfortable and humbling path. We see here an example of a man who in a time where his, his nation was polarized with, with the whole thing of black and white and, and, and can they come together and can they be apart, yet he meets with God, gazes upon the fullness of who he is and finds the power to walk down that path and embrace Jackie Robinson. See, Brent's Ricky's example, it, it speaks to racial unity, but it also cuts across every other area of our lives. If you want to have unity in your family dynamics, you got to walk the uncomfortable path in humility. If you want to have unity on your sports team, you want to have unity with your children, in your church, in your marriage, it will require us to be willing to walk that path. As a new parent, my son is a year and a half, I've just learned so much regarding this principle of walking that uncomfortable path and humbling myself because, you know, I first came in, I'm not gonna lie, my whole mentality was like, yo, I'm the dad, you listen, like, I'm gonna correct you, get it right. Come on, let's go. <laughs> let's go, like, get it right. And you know, kind of like that Haitian stern mentality, like, yo, let's go. And I didn't realize this, that our connection with someone directly impacts their cooperation with us. This is why if you're in your marriage and you guys are experiencing communication at a level 10, y'all connecting, and you, you know, you watching some sports and you like, babe, can you give me a sandwich? She's like, yeah, sure, baby, what you want? You want mayonnaise on it, cheese, lettuce? But if you had a one and your connection and communication, you're like, babe, can you get me a sandwich? Now, my wife is, is Jamaican. She's, this is her. You don't got two feet? Like, you better use your two feet to make your own sandwich. See, our, our connection, right, will directly impact our cooperation. And so as a dad, I learned, listen, if my son is throwing tantrums and he's not listening, that means I need to get on the floor a little bit. I need to connect with him. I need to see life through his lens and have empathy with what he's going through. And that results in our cooperation and our unity. So bosses, parents, teachers, husbands, if you're low on the cooperation scale, can I humbly submit to you, it might mean it's time for a date night. It might mean it's time to take your kids out at the park. It might mean it's time to have an impromptu conversation or dialogue. This is how God works. Peter goes and he does in this text what in most Jewish minds, in his contemporary minds, it's the unthinkable. He goes, he walks this uncomfortable path. And, he, and here's the thing, don't miss this. In him walking the uncomfortable path with humility, not only is Peter reconciled to Cornelius, but he is further reconciled in a much more profound way to God. And Peter being willing 
to walk those uncomfortable paths and say, yo, man, it's Cornelius. Mind you, the centurions were the ones who crucified Jesus, right? So not only is he a Gentile, he's like, yo, you crucified my Lord, but he walked that path. And in so doing, he's not only reconciled further with, with Cornelius, but he's also further reconciled to God. Up until Acts chapter 10, Peter, although he walked with Jesus, he's under the impression that God deals with us based on our work, based on our goodness, based on, for him, a Jewish man, how many times he recited the Shema? Did he recite it in the morning and in the evenings? Or, or did he give his alms to the poor? For him, it, it's, it's based on that. And, and imagine, if that's what your relationship is based on with God, then imagine the fear that you feel when you fell at those things. Imagine the sense of disconnect that you have when, oh man, I didn't, rec I didn't recite the Shema this time. And so in Peter being willing to, to walk that uncomfortable path, God gives him a greater revelation of his grace and of his mercy and of who he is. Greenhouse, can I humbly submit to you, my heart's been so burdened with this message that as long as you're entrenched in your silos, your gated communities, with those friend groups who are in the same tax bracket as you, as long as you're entrenched with people who look like you and vote like you and agree like you, there are aspects of God that you will never tap into until you find in yourself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the courage to walk that uncomfortable path and tell that coworker who's Muslim or Buddhist or whatever faith they are, can I take you to lunch? You have something from your story that I need to gain and glean from. That you would walk and go across the train tracks to that at-risk youth trying to find his way. You would go and say, listen, can I sit with you and mentor you? because you have something to contribute to my sanctification and to my understanding of who God is. We're not gonna find a measure of deliverance or healing or freedom till we're willing to walk this uncomfortable path. But we see the method, we see the mission, but, but what's the motivation? This is where we'll close. The motivation is God relates to us not on the basis of works. God relates to us based on his grace and his mercy, not on what we deserve. Acts chapter 10, verse 36 says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Here's the good news. Here's the motivation. God is merciful and gracious. Think about this. If anyone had the right to separate themselves from us, it would be God. If anyone had the right to say, nah, man, I ain't dealing with them folks. God is holy in all of his ways. He's perfect, he's spotless, and you and I are unholy and imperfect in all of our ways. God is gracious and compassionate 
That is his nature. You and I are bent towards selfishness and tribalism and looking out for me and mine. God is perfect and we are not. Yet he was willing to choose to send his son to go, through, go down 42 different generations. Mind you, those 42 different generations, they're Jew and Gentile. All up in those generations, Rahab the prostitute is connected with Jesus. She's related by blood through to Jesus. He was willing to come down, dwell among us, our, 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 our mirror, our filth. He had the courage to walk that path. What's the motivation? God is gracious and merciful. We start with God, but then we end with God. He will give us the grace to walk the uncomfortable paths. Give us the grace to look our spouse in the eye and say, I'm going to put in the work to humble myself, to connect with you, to love you, to hear you. There's a chapter in The Pursuit of God entitled The Gaze of the Soul. And A.W. Tozer, he writes these words. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive towards closer fellowship. What are you getting at? As Peter declared in the beginning, he started with God. The motivation and how we accomplish it, it must end with God. So what's the charge? The charge is simple. Would you take a moment, even now or as you go through your week, to gaze upon the beauty of who Jesus is? Do you see him there, arms outstretched, beaten and bruised, hung between two thieves? What was the reason for the scandalous death? Oh, the reason was he had a dream of uniting Jew and Gentile, black and white, slave and free, uniting them to himself. He was willing to lay down his life that you and I might be engrafted in, not on the basis of merit, because we don't deserve it. We all have fallen short but on the basis of love, of mercy. I want to call you to gaze upon that image, gaze upon it so long that what you find, it infuses into your heart. And from your heart, it goes down into your feet. You're willing to go and say, you know what, man, this year, maybe we need to spend a vacation on a mission trip. We have some things to learn from those who don't have like we have. That you would gaze at it so long that it would lead you to say, you know what, I, I need to call that person and ask them for forgiveness. Say, you know what, I'm sorry. I don't have it all together, and my standard is not the ultimate standard. I'm going to humble myself and say, you know, I, I was wrong. I could have done that better. To say, you know what? I don't know. Would you teach me? Would you forgive me? Would you lead me? We would gaze at that image long enough 
to see the one who is worthy of all worship coming down to receive scorn. Could you imagine what would happen, church, if we lived this out? Imagine how compelling it would be to a world so divisive, so polarized. They would see the gospel in all of its beauty, in all of its fullness, not in perfect people, but people who are willing to humble themselves to walk that uncomfortable path, motivated by the grace and the mercy that Christ has shown to exalt the image of one who is altogether lovely and altogether worthy and altogether wonderful. My charge to the believers here in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to Christ, my charge to you is by the grace of God to walk that uncomfortable path of humility. There's glory on the other side of the difficulty. There's glory in your marriage on the other side of you working through and seeing things from the lens of another. There's glory on the other side of forgiveness. Some of you have been wronged, you've been hurt, you've been mistreated, you've been discriminated against. Women, there's been men who have used their power to manipulate and on behalf of men, I am so, so sorry. We live in this society where we exalt manliness at the expense of our women. I am so, so sorry. But can I submit to you that your healing is going to be found as you walk down this path. So to the believers, I'm going to give you that charge to, to walk that path with love in your heart. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you haven't made peace with God. Listen, there can't be peace with your coworker or friend until you have made peace with God, until you have peace for yourself through the gospel. You can't have peace with anyone else. You don't know tonight, if you're not certain, if you were to die tonight and you would spend eternity united with Christ, nothing else matters. Don't delay it. Don't put it off. Now is the day of redemption. Now is the time to say, Jesus, I see what you've done for me. I, I get it. The Spirit is drawing me. And I'm coming to unite my heart forever with yours. If you're here in this room and you need to do that, I want to call you forth. Don't delay another minute. Now is the time. And the Spirit calls. Don't harden your voice. If you're watching online, you need to do that. Go ahead and, and text in a thread and tell someone, listen, I need to give my heart and life to Jesus. You'll bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. We're going to close. Father, I thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have started a mission where you're redeeming all people, all cultures to yourself. A beautiful tapestry of your glory. Father, I pray, Jesus, that we would walk the uncomfortable path. That we would say, Jesus, there's things in me that I need to change. There's things in me that I need to remove. There's people that I need to connect with more before I try to get them to do things. Or there's people that I need to challenge in grace and in truth. God, I pray that you would allow the motivation to be your love. Oh, shower us with love, with grace that our eyes would be forever fixed on you, not being unity conscious, racial reconcilia race reconciliation conscious, but God conscious, Jesus conscious, that that would move us to do things that we couldn't have done in our own power. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name.